If you'd please open God's word with me to Deuteronomy chapter 29. I would also invite you to follow in the outline in the bulletin on assurance of salvation. Chapter 18 of the Westminster Confession. If you don't have a bulletin, it's in the back of the hymnal. Westminster Confession, chapter 18. We'll read Deuteronomy in a few minutes. Let's begin with the reading of the first two sections of chapter 18 of Assurance of Grace and Salvation. Section 1, although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and fleshly presumptions that they are in God's favor and in a state of salvation, this hope of theirs will perish. Nevertheless, those who truly believe on the Lord Jesus, love him sincerely, and strive to live in all good conscience before him may, in this life, be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, a hope that shall never make them ashamed. This certainty is not merely a conjectural and probable persuasion grounded on a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded on the divine truth of the promises of salvation, on the evidence in our hearts that the promised graces are present, and on the fact that the spirit of adoption witnesses with our spirits that we are God's children. The Holy Spirit, by whom we are sealed for the day of redemption, is the pledge of our inheritance. If you're familiar with the Shorter Catechism 36, it asks, what are the benefits from sanctification? Do you know the answer? What is listed first? What are the benefits of sanctification, growing in holiness? The very first answer is assurance of God's love. Very first benefit of the Christian life. 17th century, the theologians treated this question of assurance as the greatest question to be asked. And it is. It affects your whole Christian life now. And it's a question really of eternity. Where will you spend eternity? Are you sure that you are going to be with Christ? Why? Why are you certain? This is the question that's before us in the sections in the Westminster Confession. The writing of the Westminster is in the 1640s, which is 130 years after Martin Luther's posting of his 95 Theses, the beginning of the Reformation, and it's about a century after the uh, counter-Reformation from the Roman Catholics from a Catholic church, and so the positions are pretty well settled, and the Westminster Confession is writing then to an established position of the Roman Catholic Church, which denies any assurance of salvation. It's formulated in the Council of Trent, and Roman Catholicism still teaches that, that unless there's been an extraordinary revelation of God, you cannot know, and you should not know, that you have any assurance of salvation, and they view that as actually an an inducement so that you'll press on to obey so that someday you might be worthy of heaven. But the scriptures and our Westminster Confession, based on scripture, teaches no, that is not true. All believers may and ought to have assurance of salvation. You come to this question on assurance of salvation, and you have four groups of people first group are unbelievers who don't particularly care about the question. They're not even interested in the gospel. They know that they're not Christians, and so this question of assurance isn't even on their radar. And in some ways, they are easier to witness to because they're not self-deceived. They're not thinking they are Christians when they're not. 
There's a second group, and that is true believers, but they're not assured of their salvation. They don't experience assurance for a variety of reasons. There's a third group, and those are true believers who do have assurance of salvation. They find great joy in the gospel. It's this fourth group that brings up the whole, complicates this whole discussion. There are those who think they are Christians who really are not believers. So they have an assurance, but it's a false assurance. So you have two groups of people with assurance. One really are believers and the other are not believers. The Westminster Confession starts then with this fourth group. Let's look tonight at the danger of a confident but a false assurance, section one, and then the joy of a confident and true assurance, and third, the basis for a confident and true assurance. And then next time, Lord willing, we'll look at the reason for a confident and true assurance and also counsel for a lack of genuine and true assurance, trying to make that very pastoral. How do you help somebody who struggles with this question? First, then, let's consider the danger of a confident but false assurance. It's a very solemn way to begin the chapter, don't you think? It's very possible to be confident that a person is a Christian, but it's a false confidence because the person's not a true believer. Although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and fleshly presumptions that they are in God's favor and in a state of salvation, this hope of theirs will perish. Follow as I read God's word, Deuteronomy 29, beginning with verse 16. Moses is warning, you know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, that lest there be among you a a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I'll be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Somebody who is rebellious against the Lord, and yet he has confidence. I'm fine with God. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jesus tells us, Luke 18.9, of some who were Confident of their righteousness. Did you ever notice that word confident? False assurance. Confident of their righteousness. And he told them the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. It's only the tax collector who was justified and saved and forgiven. But those who were confident of their own righteousness, everything's fine between us and God, were falsely deluded. They had a false, they had an assurance, but it was a false assurance. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Proverbs 14, 12 warns us. 
And Jesus also warned us, Matthew 7, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? But I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Church members, but they're unsaved. But they have a confidence. Oh, we're Christians and everything's fine. Unless God opens our eyes for all of us in mercy to see the truth, the self-deception can, can blind our hearts. Confident assurance, but it's a false reality, is a very solemn warning. Those who sincerely believe they're going to heaven, but they're not saved. It comes from many different reasons. It might be just from a natural desire of self-love. I should be happy. Of course I should be happy. And God wants me to be happy. So of course I'll get into heaven. The person has no awareness of the wrath of God or sin or holiness of God. Maybe it's from a sense of pride and self-righteousness. I take care of my family. I've never killed anyone. I've kept all the rules. Of course I'm going to heaven. Maybe it's just tradition. I was was baptized. And, of course, I'm a Christian. Nominal. Just never gave much thought to it. Maybe it's from false teaching. Universalism and others teach that all will go to heaven. Maybe it's a cult that teaches from a false god. Broad road that leads to destruction. Many are on it. Maybe today it's just based on a feeling. So many people, today's truth just comes from how you feel. Of course I feel I'm a Christian. I feel that everything's okay between me and God. It's a very serious danger. Somebody can believe and feel that everything's fine. But their assurance of salvation is not based on the truth of God's word. It's not based on the genuine work of the Holy Spirit. A person can be absolutely convinced that they can swallow arsenic poison thinking that it will cure their headache. They can be absolutely convinced, sincerely believe it, but the poison will kill you. The sincerity or the intensity of how deeply you feel about something doesn't make it true. And that's why the scriptures call us, it's so important that you must examine yourselves carefully to make sure that your profession of faith is true and that it's according to God's word. 2 Peter 1.10 instructs believers to this duty to be diligent to confirm our calling and election. 2 Corinthians 13.5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? Jesus gave the warning of the parable of the four soils, And there were those that sprung up the seed and then because of hardships or the love of the world fell away. It's a warning to search our own hearts, to be certain we're not poor soil, that we are pressing on truly in Christ. There is a danger of a confident but a false assurance. And then secondly, let's consider the joy of a confident and true assurance beginning again in section 1. Nevertheless, those who truly believe on the Lord Jesus love him sincerely and strive to live in all good conscience before him may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, a hope that shall never make them ashamed. This certainty is not merely a conjectural and probable persuasion grounded on a fallible hope, but an 
infallible assurance of faith. What is a believer? It's one who understands what Christ did on the cross to bear our sins in our place. And so it's one who repents of their sins and trusts in him alone for forgiveness and salvation, who has embraced the Lord Jesus as their Lord and Savior to love and to obey. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And so the assurance of salvation then is the conviction, the confidence that I do belong to Christ. I have received salvation. I have received the forgiveness of my sins. So it's not only someone who believes in Christ for salvation, but knows that he believes in Christ for salvation and that he's genuinely, graciously loved by God. And the scriptures teach, the confession puts it this way, that that believer is to be certainly assured. This assurance is not merely a conjectural and probable persuasion, we would say, not an educated guess, not a likely bet, but an infallible assurance of faith. We define Infallible in today's theology, usually as to be without error, but in the 17th century, the time of the writing of the confession, infallible meant that, will, that which will not fail you. It won't let you down. That's the assurance that you can have. It won't let you down. And the scripture promises this. Colossians 2.12 promises the full assurance of understanding. The gospel is absolutely true. And you can rest in it. The scriptures promise the full assurance of faith, Hebrews 10.22. The full assurance of hope to the end, Hebrews 6.11, which is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ has eternal life, John 3.16. And if God's word says this, that's enough. Paul would write, 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I have believed. I am convinced that he's able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Again, he writes in Romans 5, we have peace with God. We have this standing in grace. We have this hope of the glory of God now. Hope in the scriptures is not like we use the word today. Hope so today just means You're trusting in an unlikely possibility. You hope your flight is on time. That's how we use the word hope. But in the scriptures, hope is the certainty of something that's not yet realized, something that's not yet here, but it's the certainty of it. And scriptures tell us that you can have absolute confidence of the assurance of your salvation. It's a present taste of the eternal joy, the eternal life, which you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul's writing this not because he's been given special revelation about his own standing. He's writing this for all believers. This is the comfort that you can have as you have come to Christ. Walton said of the Puritan Richard Sibbs, who influenced many of the Puritan pastors, that heaven was in him before he was in heaven. And that's true of all believers. You can have an absolute confidence of being in Christ and the forgiveness of sins and his love and care for you even before we get to heaven. 
In the mountains of southern France, there's a number of older traditional Huguenot churches, which is the Protestant uh, Reformation churches. They have members who've come from a long line of faithful members, and yet in, in some of these churches, there's a very unsettling thing that happens at the time of the Lord's Supper. Elements are passed, but many of the believers will not take. If you would ask them about their refusal to partake of the Lord's Supper, they would say, well, we're not sure that we're saved. We don't dare presume to reenact the sign of belonging to Christ. They've confused. We're, we're saved because what Christ has done for us. We're not saved because how confident we are in our own faith. And that's an example of some in the Reformed tradition who have, have missed this. Believers who, they actually see doubt and lack of assurance as a necessary step. You have to go through this first. It's an appropriate self-reflection. You must have doubts to show that you're really a sinner. You're really unworthy of Christ. And so some can turn the lack of assurance into a work, and actually an indication of spirituality. The more one doubts, the more spiritually is. It's so twisted. No, the scriptures teach that all believers may and should have an assurance of salvation and ought to have this, an infallible hope. There's a danger of a confident but a false assurance. And then there's the joy of a confident and a true assurance. So both groups have an assurance of salvation. How do you tell them apart? Then the rest of section two then gives us three tests. Here's how you can tell them apart. Section 2b, the basis or the reason for a confident and true assurance is founded on, here's the basis for one, the divine truth of the promises of salvation, on the evidence in our hearts, two, that the promised graces are present, and on the fact, three, that the spirit of adoption witnesses with our spirits that we are God's children. The Holy Spirit, by whom we are sealed for the day of redemption, is the pledge of our inheritance. So here's the three tests. Here's the, here's the basis for a true assurance, the truth of God's word, the evidence of God's work within you, and the witness of God's spirit. So the first basis of assurance is the promises of God's word. God, who does not lie, gave us his word, a strong encouragement to take hold fast to the hope that's set before us. Hebrews 6.17, John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. God's word says it. And so John would write, 1 John 3.4, we know that we've passed from death to life. Assurance. First John 5.13, these things I've written, there's the scripture, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Acts 2.21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God's word says it. It's God's word is true. O Lord God, thou art God and thy words are true. Second Samuel 7.28, a true believer is always coming back to God's word. What does God's word say? God's word says this is the gospel. God saves people like sinners, like me, and I have come to Christ. This is the gospel. This is the basis of my assurance. You keep coming back to scriptures, not your feelings, not your opinions, not looking at your navel. It's not looking inside. It's looking to the scriptures. Otherwise, your experience and your feelings and your opinions can be so self-deceived and so blind. Here's the first basis. It's the promises of God's word. And the second basis for assurance is the evidence 
of God's work within. The promised graces are present. Now, graces is an older word, plural. We would use it today as a synonym for the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's the experiential growth, the change in your life that's happening as God is conforming you more and more to the likeness of Christ. It's probably an allusion to 2 Peter 1.5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brother affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is nearsighted, that he's blind, he's haven't forgotten that he's been cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these things, you will never fall. It's not that obedience, it's not that good works save us, but they are evidence of the new birth and therefore the basis of the assurance. Look what God is doing in me. More and more, I'm putting away these sins and more and more being conformed to the likeness of Christ. Thomas Wilcox writes, graces may be evidences, but the merits of Christ alone without the evidences must be the foundation of your hope to stand on. Christ only is the hope of glory. God will look at nothing but Christ, and you must look at nothing else. Christ is the ground of your salvation. But for the assurance of salvation, one of the marks is God is doing things in me. He's conforming me more and more to the likeness of Christ. There are many of these graces, many of these evidences. Just consider three. True assurance is evidenced by humility. Galatians 6.14, may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world a genuine humility toward God and toward others. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove in vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me, 1 Corinthians 15.10. The evidence of somebody who's truly been born again, one of God's elect, as they understand God's grace to them, why would he save the likes of me? And there's a gratitude for God's grace Thomas Watson writes, the jewel of assurance is best kept in the cabinet of a humble heart. True assurance is evidenced by humility. True assurance is evidenced by obedience, that desire to press on in holiness. A false assurance leads to self-indulgence and sloth. But a true believer will certainly persevere in, in it, in the gospel, to the end and be eternally saved. You're going back to chapter 17, perseverance. The assurance of salvation is when one is persevering. If, if one is truly turned to Christ, there must be repentance and a desire after holiness. God's grace doesn't make obedience optional. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John 14, 15. And by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments, First John Two, three, true evidence, true assurance is evidenced by obedience, that desire to press on in holiness 
running after it, without which no one will see the Lord. You see two fish in the river, which one is dead? It's only the live fish that swims against the current, fighting the sinful nature, fighting, pressing against the world. And so if you see perseverance and holiness, desire to follow after Christ, that is an assurance of salvation. It's a very practical application to the covenant children. You may never know a time when you did not believe in Christ. You may never know a time when you saw your life drastically change. But the question is, today, are you trusting in Christ? Today, are you desiring to put more and more sin out of your life and seeking to obey God's word? And then true assurance, thirdly, is evidenced by spiritual hunger. 1 Peter 2.2, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If you're really alive, you're going to hunger, you're going to thirst, desire to be under the scriptures, and, and, and then to love God's people. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. The whole book of 1 John is written for this question, isn't it? As we had in a series recently. The basis for assurance is the promise of God's word. The basis for assurance is the evidence of God's work within you. And the basis for assurance, thirdly, is the witness of God's spirit. The spirit of adoption witnesses with our spirits that we are God's children. Now that's a quote that's directly taken from Romans 8.16. The Holy Spirit witnesses with our spirits that we are God's children. Holy, the Westminster Confession here, remember, is not speaking of the grounds of salvation. That's the work of Christ. It's speaking of the conscious awareness of our salvation, our experience. They're not the same. The ground of salvation is what Christ has done. But the assurance is that personal, experiential assurance that I believe in Christ and that he is my Savior That comes from the witness of God's Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit witness to us that we are the children of God, and how is that an assurance of salvation? First, to state the negative, the Holy Spirit does not witness to us directly, or we would say immediate. The Holy Spirit does not speak to us, you're a Christian, does not... We work with us with our feelings. I'm very sad, very grieved when I hear many believers saying, I don't have a feeling today of the closeness of God. And that's, and that's how they pray. God, please give me a greater feeling today of your closeness, of your love for me. You can't distinguish that from self-delusion. You can't distinguish that from false assurance. That's not how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. He doesn't work to, immediately to us. But rather, the Holy Spirit's witness is mediate. He works through means. If we believe, and the Bible teaches, that the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture, he's the author of all of these promises of God's Word, and if God's Word tells us that he will open up our eyes to understand and believe the Word, well, then it's the Holy Spirit that applies these promises to the believers with such a conviction and joy that you're included in that promise. The Holy Spirit takes the word of Scripture and he applies it to your heart so powerfully, so personally, so authoritatively that you have no doubt that God has spoken to you. 
And so by definition, you can't have assurance of salvation unless you're under the word. <laughs> because that's what the Holy Spirit will use. He will use the preaching of the word. He will use your, the reading of the scriptures. You're getting back to chapter 17, the means of grace. That's how the Holy Spirit will give perseverance to the end. That's how the Holy Spirit will give assurance of salvation, through means, through the scriptures. The Holy Spirit is also going to witness to us, since he is the author of these graces, since he's the author of the fruit, it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. In Philippians 2.13, since he's the one that's working in us, both the willing and the doing of his good pleasure, then it will be the Holy Spirit that will open your eyes to see. Look, remember, you're reacting differently than you used to years ago. Look at the progress. Look at the encouragement you see. Yes, you feel like you may have a long way to go. We all do. But look back. See the growth and holiness. You're not what you once were. And the Holy Spirit assures us even by opening our eyes to see how he's been working in our lives. As one writer of the Westminster Confession, Thomas Goodwin, put it, the Spirit writes first his graces in us, and then he teaches our consciences to read his handwriting. Since the Holy Spirit is the author of faith in all of its degrees and of love and of hope, then through the Holy Spirit, he has given to us the assurance of salvation. How, does that, how is that different than introspection? How is that trying to analyze whether your faith was good enough or genuine enough? You don't analyze the faith. The focus is not on you. The focus is not whether your faith was good enough or sufficient enough whether you had enough knowledge, whether it was sincere enough, you're not looking for certain feelings. But the Holy Spirit brings you back to the promises of the word, brings you back to the work of Christ. Faith is to reach to Christ and to rest in his work, to rest in his word. Jason Heliopolis writes, Dear Christian, it's not the degree or the quality or the abundance of our faith that saves. Faith does not look to itself. It looks to another, and in Christ, the object of our faith, salvation lies. In my experience, um, I went through a time of lack of assurance. It was quite troubling to me. kept it within. Um, Others did not know of the struggle. Perhaps you have as well. And I remember in college uh, one night, just laying on my bed, thinking of these things, and it was a dark time of the doubt of salvation. And very clearly, very powerfully, very personally, John 6.37 came to me, to my memory. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. That's what God's word said. God does not lie. And my heart was quiet. I'm coming to Christ with all of my questions, with all of my sin, with all of my struggles. But God has promised that all who come to him, he will not drive away. Do you believe that? The Holy Spirit applied that word to my heart and there were no doubts again. 
That's the witness of God's Holy Spirit as he works through Scripture. There is a danger of a confident but a false assurance. There is the joy of a confident and true assurance. They both have assurance, but how do you tell the true one? Well, the basis or the reason for a confident and true assurance is the true believer rests in the promises of God's word. That's true north. They always come back to scripture. What does God's word say? Not my feelings, not my opinions. And the true believer sees the evidence of God's work within them. There is a change to become more and more like Christ. And the prayer, Lord, make me more and more like Christ. And the true believer finds joy in the witness of God's spirit who assures us and applies God's word to our hearts. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, we are all at different places with this subject before us tonight. And thank you that you know that and are aware of that fully. And your spirit will apply your word to each of us. Father, we pray if there's any that eyes need to be opened, that there is a false assurance, would you in mercy and tender love even open their eyes tonight and not allow them to rest until they know that they are in Christ. For those who have a weak faith, uh, thank you that the bridge is strong, Christ is strong. And thank you that our Savior does not extinguish the smoldering wicks, but he is gracious and kind even to those who are weak. We pray that you will strengthen those with weak assurance, true believers who are resting in Christ. And may we all keep looking away from ourselves, looking to Christ. May you complete the work that you've begun in us. May you bring us more and more to the fullness of Christ. May you, Father, have mercy on us and cause us to adorn the gospel with our lives. And may we cause no one to stumble. We pray these things looking only to Christ, our sufficiency in his name. Amen.